Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. History matters. We know that now more than ever, as our nation grapples with its past and the repercussions on our present and future lives as Americans. Today, where we live, we dig into the individual people and moments that make our state what it is today. It's the focus of a new book by state historian Walt Woodward called Creating Connecticut, Critical Moments That Shaped a Great State. Woodward joins us for the hour. What do you want to know about Connecticut's history? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Walt Woodward is also an associate professor of history at the University of Connecticut. He's a narrator and producer of Today in Connecticut History, which you hear on WMPR, as well as Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history with Connecticut Explored magazine. Walt Woodward's joining us today via Zoom. Walt, so good to talk with you today. Good morning, Lucy. How are you? I'm doing well. I wish that we could be seated in a studio together talking, but this is how uh, our conversations have gone the last uh, several months. And then be careful hopefully... <laughs> what you wish for. I'm bringing you zucchini. Oh, that's true. <laughs> well, Walt, we really appreciate you coming to talk about your new book. And before we, we talk about creating Connecticut, you know, I, I wanted to ask you as our state historian, uh, the fact that we've, as a country, have gone through so much in the last several months. I'm wondering if you you could uh, give us some of your response uh, to what you've been witnessing and hearing these last uh, few months. Well, we, you know, this has been a remarkably important time for historians. It's been a tough time that you know, to start with COVID nineteen. This is, you know, it's, it's the event of a century, and I think people have people have really been kind of reassessing their own lives in ways that you don't do unless you're living through a remarkably important historic time. Then you layer on top of that all of the um, uh, this, this kind of crucial moment in America's long history of difficult relations with race and how that has come to a head in this moment. In some ways, it's really interesting, Lucy, it mirrors the red summer of uh, 19, 1919, which was right after the flu epidemic of 1918, that it was a time when, uh, when, when people are just, you know, they're ready for change, I think. And so much of the change right now is focused on monuments and mm -hmm. history. And that's something that a colleague of mine, Alan Marcus in the NEAG School of Education at UConn and I have worked with in the past. And uh, we're having some really, you know, some really interesting discussions about now, what is the role of monuments both mm -hmm. in the present and in the past? Mm. Was it surprising to you that the Christopher Columbus uh, statue in New Haven of all places at Worcester Square was removed? You know, it, it it wasn't surprising, 
because this was something that came up more than 20 years ago in 1992 during the Columbian Exposition. There was a there was a great discussion then about Columbus, and it's really interesting. I think in the in the debate over the Columbian quincentennial, there was a kind of consensus agreement that if people want to keep monuments that are contested visible and open to people, then they really need to make sure that whoever sees those monuments can see the multiple perspectives from which they're interpreted. And unfortunately, in the Columbus Monument in New Haven, and in, in you know many places around the country, people haven't done that. And so when it came up again, I think, you know, I, th I, I think it made sense to a lot of people, this just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, my colleague and I are talking about this. We're wondering if there isn't really an expiration date on monuments, you know, monuments when they're built reflect two time periods. They reflect the event, the historical event they represent or the person they represent. Then they also reflect the values of the people who put the monuments up. In the case of the, the, the Columbus monuments are really interesting because they were put up in the, you know, in the 1890s, the turn of the 20th century, at a time when many Italian immigrant, uh, in many Italian Americans were immigrating into the United States and they weren't being received well. There was a lot of resistance to their coming. They spoke a foreign language. They had different customs. It's, you know, there was a lot of ethnic racism directed against them. And these statues of Columbus were put up as a claim to citizenship and as a claim to equality. Well, you come forward a hundred years and that doesn't seem as important as the, uh, you know, as, as Columbus's own record as a person who enslaved other, other human beings as, um, you know, as someone who's got a past, you might not want to valorize. Mm. You're hearing Walt Woodward. He's Connecticut State Historian. Today, he joins us for the hour to talk about his new book, Creating Connecticut. You can join us to 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, many people see uh, us right now, the country, uh, in the middle of another significant civil rights movement. I want you to remind us about Connecticut's slow walk to emancipation. You wrote, when it came to ending slavery, Connecticut wasn't exactly in a rush. You Talk about that in your book. <laughs> no, that's uh, that. And that, in fact, is understatement. Uh, after the, uh, the American Revolution, many states in the North recognized that in the Declaration of Independence, there was an, an explicit claim to the equality of all human beings. And they were asking the question, how can you justify enslaving people when you profess to believe in this document. So many, many individuals in Connecticut after the American Revolution actually uh, worked to free slaves that they owned as a kind of moral imperative for themselves. The state, however, was much more reluctant to do that. In 1784, they passed the first emancipation law, but that law said that children of 
uh, children of enslaved mothers would be free when they reached the age of 25. They said nothing about the parents of those children. It was a it was a very slow walk towards emancipation that continued. Slavery continued in Connecticut up until the year 1848. And you know, some people might want to think, well, at least then Connecticut was done with racism, but absolutely not. Connecticut uh, Connecticut had a kind of deeply embedded racism that it took right into the Civil War. Uh, that, of course, is not to say that there weren't fervently committed abolitionists in Connecticut and there weren't many people who were, uh, who were completely philosophically and morally opposed to slavery, but the majority of the people of the state uh, were were even if they were opposed to slavery, certainly wanted nothing to do with equality. I think the proof of that is that when the 13th Amendment passed, uh, freeing, ending slavery in America, uh, people in the legislature, this, this was a movement led, oddly enough, by P.T. Barnum, who had become a state legislature, a state legislator, kind of specifically because of his abolitionist views. And in 1865, he joined with other people to advance a constitutional amendment to take the word white out of the 1818 constitution when it said uh, voting shall be, uh, all white male voters in the state should, all white males in the state should be able to vote. Barnum said, let's take the word white out so that every male in the state should vote. And of course, you can hear in that who's still being left out. Mm. But this is after the Civil War. It's after slavery has ended in the country. And yet the people of Connecticut in a referendum twice voted that down uh, by a vast majority of votes. So we, we participated in the ending of slavery, but Racism continued in Connecticut for a long, long time. Mm. Again, you can join our conversation with Walt Woodward, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I mentioned the title of your new book is Creating Connecticut, and so one of the early chapters is about Dutchman Adrian Block. Tell us why you wanted to start there. Well, it's it's very interesting. Uh, history over time, I think people forget much of it. And one of the things that is all but forgotten is the half century of Anglo-Dutch conflict in Connecticut. Most people, I think, most school children certainly know that, it, that Adrian Block, who was a Dutch trader, was the first European to, that we know of to sail up the Connecticut River in 1614. Uh, some students of Hartford history know that the Dutch uh, about a decade later, built a trading house up at Hartford, but that's pretty much the end of it. For most students of Connecticut history, Adrian Block comes, the Dutch fade to black. It's a story of English versus Indians that then instantly morphs into Patriots versus Tories. So what I wanted to do in this story is to go back to the beginnings and remind people that 
the Dutch who were in New York and the English had a very conflicted relationship for more than a half century. They fought four wars in Europe that, that had impact in New England and in New York during that half century. Their, their tensions between each other or among all the English plantations and the Dutch involved all of the native tribes in New England. So there was this competition of alliances and changing sides and not knowing who to trust that made that first half century in Connecticut extremely uh, dangerous and I think of uh, a time of great anxiety for all the people involved. Yet over time, after the, in, in 1674, in 1675, the Dutch finally left uh, New Amsterdam or New Netherlands for good and it became an English colony and I guess after that, in the centuries that followed, at least in Connecticut, the record of the Dutch story just faded away. And I wanted to recapture that and remind people that the very beginnings of uh, this colony from a European perspective were extremely conflicted and that there are important parts of history worth remembering that have just kind of faded away. You mentioned the Dutch. Talk about their relationship with the Pequots and how that led to the Pequot War, Walt. Well, the yes, the, it is very, it's very interesting. Uh, Dutch traders, Adrian Block being the first, but there were many who came after him who brought with them things that were of great value to Native Americans. They brought trade goods. They brought sharp edge tools. They brought uh, beads that were seen to have spiritual value. And being uh, they brought copper kettles, which if you can imagine when you're moving from camp to camp carrying a heavy pottery kettle or a copper kettle, there might be some advantages to that. So, so native people wanted European trade goods. And the Pequot Indians who were in the area around present day New London set up a very good trading relationship with the Dutch early in the 17th century. And the Pequots controlled distribution of Dutch trade goods, which allowed them to dominate many of the other tribes in the region. So the Pequots rose to power through an alliance with the Dutch in the early 17th century. But after the English came and established trading uh, houses in Windsor, uh, at the invitation of local tribes who wanted to resist the Pequots, things got much more complicated. And that's where the conflicts that led up to the Pequot War began. Mm. You talk about uh, the power of rumors also uh, in the lead up uh, to uh, that war. And it's interesting because these days we think about uh, social media and fake news uh, uh, causing a lot of, of division in our country. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, how the power of rumors impacted uh, what happened to the Pequots. Well, it, it is so fascinating because the actual military conflicts of the Pequot War uh, began roughly at the beginning of May 1637. By the end of the summer, uh, Sassacus, who was the sachem, the leader of the Pequots, had been executed and the war was effectively over. But that said, this three-month war, because of the power of the rumors that flew everywhere 
during the 17th century uh, and the this climate of mistrust that everyone had about everyone else, rumors kept this an area that was in a near state of conflict for the next 30 or 40 years. The, the situation was quite difficult. No one knew who they could trust. Everyone felt they needed an alliance with, with someone from another culture, but those alliances were shifting and, um, and that fed a rumor mill that constantly had people saying, oh, well, you think you can trust them? Well, let me tell you this. And if you can imagine 40 years of uh, a rumor mill that seemed to say war was imminent all the time, it kept both English and native people in a constant state of military preparedness or alert right up until 1675 and King Philip's War, which was the, the great Anglo-Indian War of the 17th century. And that happened in, in 1675. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Connecticut State historian Walt Woodward. And we're talking about his new book, Creating Connecticut, Critical Moments That Shaped a Great State. What questions do you have about our state history? You can join us too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest is Connecticut State historian Walt Woodward, and we're talking about his new book, Creating Connecticut, Critical Moments That Shaped a Great State. The book includes a collection of 24 stories about Connecticut's past. Have you read it yet? I know Walt has been doing several virtual book talks at libraries around our state. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, One thing I liked about your book, Walt, uh, besides a lot of the great information, uh, you were also playful at times, and uh, you hit some of the questions that uh, residents still have today, like why are we the nutmeg state? I, you know, I love this story because it's a it's a nickname that cuts both ways. Uh, it this goes back to the really the late 18th century and the early 19th century at the beginning of the industrial industrial revolution when Connecticut had a lot of companies in New Britain and Hartford and elsewhere around the state that were producing the consumer goods for people and they needed distribution mechanisms to get them out to people. So what would happen is that in the fall and winter after farm boys in Connecticut had gotten the crops in, they would often uh, go to these distributors, pick up lots of goods and head south, west, north, wherever, and spend their winters until the next spring as Yankee peddlers, peddling these new, uh, these new products made by Yankee manufacturers. Now, one of the goods that they most liked to sell were nutmegs. Nutmeg is a rare spice that is only grown in two places. It's grown in uh, in Malaysia, and it is also grown in one of the islands of the West Indies. So they were rare, but Connecticut had a uh, significant West Indies trade. So 
uh, Yankee shippers would bring nutmegs in. These Yankee peddlers would take them and distribute them to an eager consumer at a good price. Well, some of these guys realized, you know, at night sitting around the campfire or wherever they were staying, that nutmegs look very much like just little wooden balls. So they would often take uh, take wood and whittle out a nutmeg or two or three maybe and put them in the jar with the other nutmegs and they'd make they would increase their profits dramatically. The story was that Yankee these these Yankee could these Connecticut farm boys who would go out as peddlers were so friendly and so engaging that even when you found out later that they had given you wooden nutmegs, you would laugh it off and say, well, there it is. Now, that's a that's very much a pro-Connecticut interpretation, but it's from that that uh, reputation for being uh, crafty salespeople or unethical, if you want to uh, think about it, that the word nutmegger came from and that we became the nutmeg state, you know, the, the land of uh, Yankee dealing. Uh, we also got a tweet. Uh, someone wanted to know, of course, again, why we were nutmeggers. So you explained that well. But uh, they also wrote other demonyms that have fallen to the wayside, Walt. Oh, the land of steady habits. Well, that one will never fall to the wayside because <laughs> no. the land of steady habits is so useful. You can use it. You can use it to decry tradition or support tradition. And uh, it's going to be with us for a long, long time. That one goes back to the fact that Connecticut got a royal charter in the year 1662 that gave it virtual independence more than a century before the American Revolution. So after the American Revolution, when the new states of the sort of United States were trying to figure out how to set up their governments and set up a national government, Connecticut held itself out as the model for creating a democratic republic that worked. They said, we've done this for 120 years. And if you want to see how good government should be structured, look to us. And in, in that sense, Connecticut advanced itself as the land of steady habits. Uh, also in the American Revolution, we became the provision state because uh, we had a reputation for coming through for the continental troops and their uh, hours of greatest need. As the uh, second industrial revolution advanced and we moved into World War I and II with all the arms manufacture and defense production in the state, we became the arsenal of democracy. So we are a state that has never been short on nicknames, and I'm sure there are more to come. You can join our conversation with Walt Woodward, Connecticut State Historian, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Tom's calling from Manchester. Tom, you're on the show. Yes. Morning. Go ahead, Tom. Hi, Tom. Yes. Uh, of course, I had uh, Connecticut some history. I'm of African-American background, but I know um, uh, our name means land of the long title, river, and Native American language, but also... Our state was involved with the uh, slave trade, and we didn't abolish it till 1848. But I know that people of color have contributed to Connecticut's history in many different ways, including defending this country with, you know, wars abroad too. So I know we were a good state, but we, you know, 
also had uh, problems with discrimination, you know, classism as well. So I, you know, I'm proud to be a resident of, of Connecticut, where I am in Manchester, and uh, we, I'm a proud town too. But uh, there's also, you know, always room for improvement. You know, I, I, I actually couldn't have said it better myself. There is always room for improvement, and I think, I think many people like to think that Connecticut at some point, probably after the Civil War, really kind of cleansed itself of this long tradition of ethnic and racial discrimination. But of course that's not true. It continued right into the 60s and 70s. The, the, um, we had real uh, and serious conflict over civil rights in the 60s and 70s and problems continue, problems continue up to the present. So um, we, there has been progress over time, but this is a, uh, this is a, it's not structural, but it's a, it's a problem. Well, it may be structural. This is a, uh, this is an issue that has never gone away. And it may be, it may be that we are in a moment now, a, a, a time of reckoning where we're really going to confront the ongoing conflict between our ideals, our promise to be a certain kind of country and the reality of what we've done. Um, I know enough about people to think that life is always a work in progress, but the, I think this is a time to make a lot of progress. Please mm. cross your fingers. Uh, we think often about how our state still is very segregated because we have 169 towns and villages and hamlets. We got a couple of questions on Twitter, Walt, about why Connecticut uh, turned out this way. And uh, DJet uh, writes, uh, many towns were previously part of another town. Was there a reason for the trend of towns breaking apart into smaller communities? What can you tell us? You know, actually, it's very interesting. The, that reason goes all the way back to the last major ice age, the glaciation of 30,000 years ago, that uh, when glaciers uh, uh, slid down over Connecticut, uh, over a mile high, went out, formed Long Island, then slowly retreated and, and gradually left the state about 11 or 12,000 years ago. What those glaciers did as they move forward and backward is scour the landscape. And the nature of glacial retreat was such that in addition to throwing all these boulders, these glacier, glacial erratics that you see dotting the Connecticut countryside, they scoured off the tops of mountains and they left behind them fertile pockets of soil, fertile valleys. As a result, Connecticut unusually has uh, little little pockets of fertility separated by very barren soil and maybe four or five miles apart. So when the early settlers settled into Connecticut, they would find a fertile place, they'd settle in and, and you know pretty soon they would reach capacity. So as they had used up the land, they then would, and they called it hiving off. They would hive off their children or, uh, you know, their children's children to other towns 
And those people would go that five or six miles, find another pocket of fertility. What we ended up with over time was 169 fiercely independent towns, proud of their rights and uh, uh, committed to their traditions. So blame it on the glaciers. <laughs> you can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Mike's calling from Milford. Mike, what's your question for Walt Woodward? Hi, good morning. Um, I was told back from a political science class way back in the day that that little notch on the northern border of Connecticut um, once actually had Connecticut's uh, National Guards or something similar sent to it by a prankster lieutenant governor from back in the 1970s. Is there any truth or validity to that story? Uh, you know, I have never heard of it. I <laughs> I would love to know about it if it were true. I think if it had actually happened, uh, we would hear more about it because that just sounds like it'd be such a delicious story to uh, remind ourselves of. I will tell you that that notch, uh, that notch also goes back to the early days of Connecticut when the first surveyors of the boundary line between Massachusetts and Connecticut got it completely wrong. They said that the Massachusetts boundary was about 30 miles south of where it actually is. And so for the next century, Connecticut and Massachusetts uh, con they, they, they got pretty testy with each other and sometimes very seriously testy over who owned Suffield, who owned Enfield, that area. Uh, this went on for generations. And the notch, uh, which that little, that little nick out of the state in, in the northern boundary, that notch was part of a final settlement that moved the Massachusetts boundary north and let Massachusetts take that little piece of Connecticut for itself. So um, I, you've got me curious now. I'm going to be looking for a lieutenant governor who went to defend the notch. I love the idea. <laughs> Again, you can join our conversation with Connecticut State historian Walt Woodward. He has a new book out. It's a collection of 24 stories looking at Connecticut's past, uh, certain individuals and moments that made our state what it is today. Our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, speaking of delicious stories, Walt, you talk about the Connecticut election cake. We wanted to bring that up because we're in a big election year. Well, we are, and and you know, I personally, and there are some, there are some other people, uh, the voter registrar of Bloomfield, some people at Litchfield Historical Society. We all think that this is a really good time to bring back what was for more than a century, for a very long time, one of Connecticut's most important election traditions, and that is the tradition of having a cake on election day, a huge cake that was distributed to everybody in celebration of the right to collect your own or to elect your own rulers. Uh, I mentioned the charter of 1662 and how that gave Connecticut virtual independence. Well, the Puritans who didn't celebrate Christmas, they didn't sell Easter or any of the saints days or festival days because they said they were invented. They thought that that virtual independence, that right to select your own rulers, 
was in fact something very much worth celebrating. So when they had their election day, which uh, at the beginning of the colony took place in May, they pulled out all the stops. That was the one day these dour Puritans really had fun. And key to that was a cake. I, I have in the book, at the beginning of the book, I have a recipe that'll give you an idea of the size of the cake that they would bake up. Can I read it to you, Lucy? Sure, I'd love, I'd love to hear it. Okay, you take 30 quarts of flour, 10 pounds of butter, 14 pounds of sugar, 12 pounds of raisins, three dozen eggs, one pint of wine, one quart of brandy, four ounces of cinnamon, four ounces of fine coriander seed, three ounces of ground allspice, milk, yeast, and a very strong arm. So they would, they would bake up, you know, they wouldn't bake one cake that big. They would mix that batter up and do it into loaves. And when people came to these election festivals that were the biggest parades that took place in the colony, uh, they would celebrate with this cake. And you were known by the quality of the election cake that you know you could bake in your household. Election cake was such a big deal that when Connecticut's moved west later in the 18th and 19th century, they took the election cake concept with them and it spread all over the country. Election cake became a very important national tradition. Connecticut had some other tra traditions, riding out to meet the governor as he came into town on election day, uh, going, following all the ministers of the colony to, to church for an election sermon. These all fell by the wayside. But in 1878, when uh, the 1877, when the General Assembly changed, decided to change the election date from May to January, a reporter at the time lamented this change. And he, he, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he essentially said this, you know, moving into winter means the election parades are going to fade away. We've already lost the sermon. We've lost the tradition of riding out to meet the governor. But there is one tradition we will never lose, and that is the Connecticut election cake. It's just too important, and it's too much part of us to ever pass up. Well, I thought that was wonderful, and I think, you know, right now and for a while, elections have tended to leave, I think, everyone with a bitter taste in their mouth. So what better time than now to celebrate sweet democracy than to bring back the election cake? So I put a recipe, a modernized rec recipe in Creating Connecticut in the chapter on election cake. But if I could, Lucy, I'd like to invite anybody who would be interested in making an election cake to share with family or friends in this coming election, and I do mean men and women, I'd like to see this done equally. If you will email me, I'd be happy to send you a recipe and uh, you can make your own and impress your friends. It sounds like a good bunt cake, Walt. It's a spice cake, actually, and it is, it's, my wife has made one and it's quite delicious. <laughs> well, we'll make, we'll have to find out how many people take you up on that. Walt. we'd love to hear as well. Again, Walt Woodward is my guest today. He's Connecticut State Historian. Uh, before we head to break, uh, we got a question on Twitter from Gabriel who wants to know more about the witch trials in Connecticut. 
that happened before Salem. You talk about the man uh, that's credited for keeping down the hysteria in our state. Can you tell us briefly about him? Well, I will indeed. Um, You know, everyone knows about Salem, but in fact, there were two periods of intense witch hunting in New England. And in the first one that lasted from 1647 to 1663, Connecticut was New England's fiercest prosecutor of witches. Uh, In Massachusetts, if you were charged with witchcraft, you had a 50-50 chance of getting off. In Connecticut, for the first seven people tried, uh, it was a death sentence. If they went to trial, they died. Then in 1655, this newcomer to Connecticut, he had actually come in the 1640s. Well, he'd been around for a while, but his name was John Winthrop Jr. He had founded Old Saybrook in the 1630s. He founded New London in the 1640s. And in the 1650s, they asked him to consult on witchcraft trials. They asked him because Winthrop was an alchemist and a practitioner of natural magic himself. Surprising that to most people that you would find that in a Puritan, but he was very much interested in using religion, science, and magic together to improve the world. Well, when they asked him to come and consult, he almost immediately, in fact, he did immediately, he started finding that, yeah, it may have looked like witchcraft, but actually that wasn't witchcraft and you can't convict this person for that. So from 1655 to 61, he was uh, consulted on, on witchcraft cases and all the witches were freed. He became governor in 1657 and the cases essentially went on hiatus. In 1661, he was sent to England to get that royal charter that did so much for Connecticut. It was kind of an emergency trip. As soon as he left, witch hunting started again, and there was a witch hunt in Hartford that was, you know, it, 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 was, it was kind of like a mini Salem, but not that small. There were eight trials in eight months. Uh, four people were executed. Another five people were so certain that they were going to die, that they fled the colony in terror, leaving all their children and all their possessions. Winthrop came back in 1663 and began a long and very difficult process of dismantling this desire to convict and execute. Um, And and the, the capstone case was a case in 1669 that involved a woman named Catherine Harrison, uh, working with a minister named Gershom Bulkley, Winthrop and Bulkley changed the standards of evidence in witchcraft trials in such a way that Connecticut could never execute another person for witchcraft again. It never did. And that was in 1669, a whole generation before Salem. What Woodward is Connecticut State Historian. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, we'll continue our conversation. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy 
Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk about the digital divide in Connecticut, especially during this pandemic. How many residents still don't have access to high-speed connection? Again, we'll talk about that tomorrow. Today, my guest is Walt Woodward. He's our state historian and also an associate professor of history at UConn. We've been talking about his new book, Creating Connecticut, Critical Moments That Shaped a Great State. In one of his chapters, Walt writes, Connecticut history is family history, and few families tell that story better than the general behind one of the state's most beloved family farms, what was referring to Lyman Orchards in Middlefield, Connecticut. Joining our conversation now on the phone is John Lyman III. He's executive vice president of Lyman Orchards. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Uh, Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for having me. So tell us, uh, the Lyman uh, family goes back uh, many generations. Uh, What generation are you? I'm the eighth generation, uh, been farming here in Middlefield. We started in 1741, and uh, we have members of the ninth generation and tenth generation coming along. So, um, yeah, long, long history. A long history. Uh, you survived uh, economic downturns before, blights before. Now we're in a pandemic. How's it been going for your family, John? Well, um, we've been fortunate um, throughout. We've been able to remain open. We've been deemed an essential business. And so we've been obviously had to make adjustments, uh, implement a number of protocols in place to protect both our customers, our employees. But overall, um, we've been doing okay. We count ourselves very fortunate. Um, Interesting, too, um, initially golf courses were closed, but um, they looked at it again and the economic development uh, commission decided with certain protocols in place, golf courses could open. So um, I think we were down for two days, and then we opened up again. And uh, so all our businesses essentially have been open throughout this, and it's been uh, it's been going okay. Mm-hmm. What do you, what is it about your family? Do you think that you've been able again uh, to keep farming uh, for so many generations, John? Well, I think. The families had a very strong faith. Um, I think that's critical because, obviously, when you're dealing with with farming, um, there are so many things out of your control, and when things don't go your way, you you have to have a perspective of recognizing it's things that you don't control, and you just have to make it, you know, adjust and make it work. And so I think that, and I think the family has been committed um, to staying in Middlefield and staying, remaining on the land and farming it. You know, and that's that's essentially our our vision. We talk about preserving and enhancing the land for current and future generations, and it's we recognize the land is our greatest resource, and so we're we're very committed. And um, but we have to be creative. We have to figure out ways to adapt to the changing economy and make it more relevant uh, to each each new generation. Mm. Uh, Walt Woodward, I was really interested in this chapter about the Lymans. I didn't realize uh, uh, how uh, the family kept going by investing in things like the textiles, also working on crop specialization. I believe a family member was president of a railroad that was linking some Connecticut towns at one point. This is a family that had to be very innovative. Well, it, I, uh, hello, John. It's good to talk to you, or good to hey, good Walt. to hear you. The, yeah, it's good um, to talk with you. One of the things that I think is is most fascinating about the Lyman family is that it, they they've had a commitment to do two things: take risks when risks were necessary, and accept the outcome no matter what happened, and to be adaptable to a 
to a changing culture, changing climate. One of the you know one of the best examples of that, I think, is in the uh, 1820s and 30s when there was a consumer revolution going on, and there were new standards of cleanliness, kind of sweeping the country. Uh, one of John's relatives was it a was a David Lyman who who decided he was going to start the Metropolitan Washing Machine Company yes, it was in Middlefield. Yes. And, and he started this company and it was a fabulous success. It did so well, it helped the orchards get through a difficult time period. And then he, uh, he decided, well, if I could get these washing machines to Boston and New York, we could have washers all over the world. And that's when he got involved in the railroad. So it's a, it, the family has displayed remarkable commitment to the land combined with uh, a kind of a, a, a brilliant adaptability. Mm. You talk about uh, taking risks uh, in your book, Walt. You write that there were Lyman's, William Lyman and his son David, who were abolitionists, who publicly called for abolition back in 1851 when the state was still deeply racist. Why, why did they take that stance? Well, they actually were abolitionists before that in the 1830s and 40s, but in 1851, Congress had passed, as part of uh, the Compromise of 1850, the Fugitive Slave Law that made it a crime not to help people catch and return uh, escaped slaves. And uh, <clears throat> the Lyman said, this is, this is immoral, it's unconscionable. Um, uh, he said, a, 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 I can't... John, do you remember the phrase exactly? It's a, a person can no more, a good person can no more be a slave uh, catcher than light can be darkness. Yes, you got that right. Yeah. And, and it was there at that time, this was a, you know, this was a dramatic statement. And they were, remember, this is a time when Connecticut is still uh, deeply racist, but the majority of people are uh, anti-slavery and deeply racist, and to go public with these statements at this time carried a lot of risk with it. But I think that was the combination of uh, moral commitment and that faith mm -hmm. that John talked about. Well, you can read more about the Lymans in Walt Woodward's new book, Creating Connecticut. I want to thank John Lyman III uh, for calling in today to talk a little bit about your family. And uh, I know many residents look forward to going out to your farm for the pick-your-own season. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, one of the highlights of the year. Thank you, John, for your time. Thank you, Lucy. We'll uh, before... You before we go, Walt, uh, you know, in your book, you also wrote the old houses, walls and trees of Connecticut are at the epicenter of who we tell ourselves we are, flinty, independent, freedom-minded folk. Again, people should pick up this book to read more about how you came to live in one of your family homes at Woodward Hill. What is that like uh, to be? Oh, it's, <laughs> this is the best story. I am talking to you from this house that was built by my sixth great grandfather, uh, and his son, Israel and Eliezer Woodward in the 1760s. And this was a place that when I was a little boy, I said, I, all the family stories would revolve around this place. We, we, had, we had lost the house in the late 19th century. But as a little boy, I said, one day I'm going to own this house. 
And I tried to buy it once in the 1980s and that didn't happen. I actually live far away from here. Uh, but five years ago, the situation was just right. And I was, uh, I, I was giving a talk in Groton on a Sunday and I decided I would just drive through Columbia because I wanted to take a look at the old house. And I drove past it, saw the for sale sign, hit the brakes, scooted into the uh, parking lot of the church camp across the street and called a realtor right then and there. And uh, now uh, my wife, Marie, and I get to live and be stewards of this house that uh, has so much of my family's history in it. And, and it is, you know, it's, it's just a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. There's so many great old homes uh, around our state, including the Lyman Homestead, which I didn't get a chance uh, to bring up when uh, John Lyman III was with us. I actually live in an 1850 farmhouse, and we found pictures, Walt, when we moved in from the original owners. They loved this house, and it's great to look back and on those pictures and think about what their lives were like farming this land. Walt Woodward, again, Connecticut State historian. We'd love to have you back soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lucy. Appreciate it. Again, you can pick up his book, Creating Connecticut, and we hope that you will. It's a great read. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.